Isn't that crazy? We've had 12 weeks. Now, granted, we broke it up into two different sections, which helps, right? We had the first six, which are the first six chapters of Daniel, in which we went through, you know, the, the, really the stories of, in Daniel's life of faithfulness on the individual level, right? God at work in, in, the, in faith of an individual. And then the second six, we see the prophecies, right? And uh, we've got to see God at work through history. And boy, oh boy, is he having it work through history. Isn't it amazing? And then in those last six chapters, there were four major prophecies that God gave to Daniel. And the first one, of course, was the four beasts that came from the sea. And those were the, tied to the four empires that were going to come until the times of the end, right? And then we had the two-horned ram and the unicorn, and they battle each other off. And then Daniel's like, guess what, who that is? That's going to be Persia and Greece, and he names them. And then he says Greece is going to, uh, after they had this long horns, Alexander the Great, he's going to get He's going to be broken, and then his kingdom, the Greek Empire, is going to go into four different little empires, and there's going to be that nasty little horn that's going to grow up in there, which turned out to be Antioch, Epiphanes, the, the, the fourth. Isn't that crazy? That's pretty awesome. And then after that, they, God just wows us, and he gives us the 70 weeks. He says, for between here and the times of the end, there's going to be 70 groups of seven and that's going to how you know this is the time period, and then the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to die halfway through it, right, to set up a new covenant. <laughs> then we get to this last one, which is the vision of the time to the end. And when last week you saw how it begins, that, that uh, Daniel is praying and he's fasting and all this kind of stuff, when his people are, are going to be going back to the Holy Land, yet, yet he's at a time of fasting, and everybody else in the nation at a time of celebration, because he knows he's praying. For his people. And God shows up and he says, let me, let me just show you one last time. He's at the end of his life. He's an old man by this point. And this glorious man shows up. Maybe Jesus, maybe an angel. We don't know. But he shows up and he says, this is what it's going to look like. And then he gives him a very detailed description of what would happen in that Greek empire. Right? The battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. Between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. And what was going to happen and, and who's going to marry who and all of that crazy stuff. It was just amazing, isn't it? And that's really where it takes us today. And some of you, after last week's message, you said, well, why did you stop there? Well, because everybody pretty much agrees up to that point what, what uh, this is uh, what it's pointing to. Now, starting verse 36, we're going to get a little bit, uh, there, there's a lot of different understandings because it can fit some different things. And so we're going to talk about that today. But regardless of, of how we want to interpret this last portion of the text, it does point to something bigger. Right? We see in all of this that, that the end is just the beginning. That as a Christians, we're not looking at this final thing and then that's it. No more. Lights out. God's done. And that when God is at work, he's going to bring about an end. He's going to usher in something even bigger and better. And that's what we get to look forward to, pretty awesome stuff. Now, the memory verse that we have for us today comes to us from the New Testament in the, in the book of Romans. And this is what it says, and this is pointing back to all of these prophecies and all of these things happening before. So I thought at the end of this series, what a great memory verse to remind them. This is why this stuff matters. It says, for everything that was written in the past, that, like the book of Daniel, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught through scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And boy, could we use some hope? When you go through prophecy, if you end up with a lot of hope, you're reading it wrong. That's the purpose. All right, so since this is a long one, we're going to say it a few times, and you're going to memorize it, and then it'll be stuck into your heart and be awesome. So here we go. Say it along with me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught through the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Romans 15.4. That is a long one, right? All right, so let's think about what it says. Everything written in the past, right? So it's... What we're pointing back to is there for the purpose, teaching us. And then there's endurance taught in scriptures, right? And then there's also encouragement taught in scriptures. Two different things. Because when you're running a long race, it's helpful to have people on the sidelines going, you can do it, you can do it. Great cloud of witnesses, right? That's the two things. Endurance and then encouragement. And then the end is hope. Good stuff. Now, since you're here, you got your Bible, hopefully, you want to turn it to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start in verse uh, 36, kind of. Actually, we're going to back up a little bit 
we start, but, but put your finger there on 36. If you don't, if you forgot your Bible this morning, don't worry, we've got, we got a bunch of them in the back. If you need a Bible, please take one, our gift to you there in that little bookshelf right there. Um, and if you've got one of our Bibles on page 623 is where we're going to be uh, starting today. And, uh, and as you go there, uh, we remember that last week we saw the very detailed uh, description of, of the Greek empire, the, the conflicts that were happening there. First, it talks about uh, Daniel understands how long the Persian empire is really going to stay in power. And then we get the, uh, the very detailed description of what's going to happen between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And if you loved history, you loved that message. And if you don't like history, you probably were bored out of your skull. But it was still awesome, right, that God, right, he did some cool stuff. Right, so now we come to um, 1136, right? And the, really the question here is who is the king? There's a king that is talked about. And that lets us know what time that we're talking about and when. Now, um, so there are two major interpretations that we're going to go through and, and uh, I want to talk about. The first one that, uh, uh, actually I'm going to go through one, but there's, there's two major ways that if you read about this, and there's lots of variations in that, um, but the first way that a lot of Christians read this is interpretation where there's the, uh, Daniel's that little guy there off to the left, and he's reading, and there's going to be this prophecy, and there's going to be, you know, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and then there's 69 weeks, Right? And then Jesus comes, and then, um, you know, verse 2 and verses 3 through 35 really kind of talk about that section, because that leads us up through the Grecian Empire. And then the Messiah comes, right? That's Jesus. And then they believe there's this gap between verse 35 and 36 that lasts an, un, an undefinite amount of time, right? And then when that time ends, there's going to be the 70th week. And the 70th week deals with the end of time, like in Revelation, basically. There's a tie-in, and there's a lot of things in this 70th week of Daniel and in the book of Revelation that talk about, and that's verse 36 begins talking about those things they believe, right? And so the Antichrist is the king that they're talking about, and he'll be like a world leader or whatnot. And then after that, there's lots of understandings, like either there's a millennial kingdom that lasts for a thousand years, or there's a like, first. Or, there's a lot of ideas of what happens. Basically, eternity happens after that. Does that make sense? That's going to be the pretty much, that's the, the modern approach uh, to that. It really came into uh, 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 vogue here and since the, the middle, last part of the 1800s, right? Uh, and so uh, that's really, in the United States, American um, evangelicalism, this is going to be your, your predominant view, and it is a solid view, and there's a lot of great scholars and pastors and teachers are going to teach on that. So there's a second view, which is the historical view. And that teaches this, that, of course, there's Daniel, there's the prophecy, the 69 weeks, with the belief that the 70th week is actually the time of Christ and that he died halfway through and set up a new covenant and things like this, which is the one that I preached on when I taught on the 70 weeks, right? And that would mean that, you know, verse 2 and verse 35 and then verse 36 happens all after that, right? They're all in succession. This all points to the same time period, okay? So um, there's no gap, Okay, so this is a historical approach. This is the one that the church kind of held on to for a good portion, a long period of time is really the view of most of the Catholic church, but not just the Catholics, but then also a lot of the churches outside of the United States, out of the U.S. evangelicalism, um, hold to this view. Now, you say, um, which one are we going to talk on? Well, I'm going to point to some things. I'm going to teach on that second view, and there's a couple of reasons for it. But the first I want you to look at, there were four major uh, prophecies, that were given here. And we're going to look at in chapter 7, the four major beasts that we know were Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And Rome was taught as being the times of the end, right? So the, there. Then we have the ram and the goat in chapter 8, which talked about Persia and Greece. And then we had the 1,280 days of suffering, right, which happened to be when Antiochus Epiphanes comes in. And then it says after that, then we're going to be moving into like a time of suffering. But that's kind of the time period that that's focusing on is that little end piece. It's like he's leading people up to recognizing that the temple is going to have some difficulty, right, that people are going to have some difficulty. Seventy weeks starts with the beginning of uh, the saying, we're going to rebuild the temple. It ends with the 70th week, right? And then to say halfway through the 70th week, the Messiah dies, starts a new covenant. Now I know that if you hold the first understanding, the, the modern understanding of Daniel, you're not going to see it like that, and that's okay, because we can still love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? That's it. But <laughs> they would say halfway through, uh, the purpose of that 70th week is to set up a new covenant, and then after that, the new covenant is established, and it continues, okay? And so then we have the vision of the time of the end, Persia, Greece, and then we have, it leads up to Antiochus Epiphanes, that's what gives it to, to verse 35, right? And so... 
If that's the times, then the times of the end would be in line with the other four, right? The other verses or the other three chapters that talk about when is the time of the end, what's the focus here, is leading up to the time of the end of the old covenant where there's going to be a new covenant coming. It's the time of that end. And interestingly enough, you see around the 400, there was this prophet there that was named uh, uh, Malachi, and he was the last one, and then there was no more prophecies until Jesus came, right? And so it was setting the people up, letting them know that God was going to be at work. He hadn't abandoned them, right? Pretty amazing. And so this is why, uh, now, you say, I, I recognize that uh, this is not the only view that, uh, are, that are held in amongst Christians. In fact, in America right now, this is probably the very the minority view, which is one of the reasons I'm going to teach it. The, the reason why I'm going to talk on, I'm going to just teach this last view right now. The first one is that it's contextually consistent. And I think when we go to the scriptures, we have to go and say, I'm going to, I want to see if there's something in scripture that, that makes sense with everything that came before. I think contextually, the prophecies that God gave Daniel all kind of point to that time period. So that's one of the reasons. But that's not the only one, because... I do respect the other view very much because there's a lot of things on that second view that make a lot more sense in the second half of, this, of Daniel. Okay? Uh, the second thing is that it is a lesser-known view in evangelicalism, which means that there are a lot of really great teachings that you can get a hold of really easily that will teach you that first view, and that's great. And I encourage you to go listen to them because the idea is not, is Aaron right? Roger, we want to go to the Word, right? But you probably won't hear very many on this second, understand the second view because it's lesser held. Does that make sense? So I want to give you something so you can go with the scripture and that way you can hear and you can just judge for yourself, which is good. The third reason I'm only going to teach in the second one is because I don't have time for both. You don't want to sit here all afternoon, right? So because there's other really great teachings out there, go listen to those, but also we're going to be hitting this one. We believe, or I'm going to be reading it with the understanding the time of the end, verse 36, is a continuation right after verse 35. Does that make sense? All right. Some of you really don't care whatsoever. You're like, yeah, all right. That's good. All right. So, so the identity of the king and his times. That's going to be the thing that we're going to talk about to begin with. You look at verse 21 through verse 35, which is what we preached on last week. And we know that pretty much every scholar believes, even Jewish scholars believe that that points to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, right? From the Seleucid kingdom, he was a ruler of Syria, he was a vile and blasphemous ruler, he was described in that section, and everything lines up so clearly from his history to when he shows up and what he does, it's pretty much undeniable. This is the guy who Daniel was talking about, right? Up to verse 35, Right? And so at the end, that persecution that we read about is happening in the years between 169 and 167 BC, which are important dates, because that gives us a point in this texture or this text that says, okay, when is, when is this happening? 169 to 167, about three and a half years that we're looking at at a horrible persecution of the Jewish people. Right? Actually, it was about six years from when he started the persecution to when he dies, and that's when God ends the persecution. But when, from the time that he stops the sacrifices in the temple, like creates the sacrifices that are the, the pig and all that, to the time that the temple is reclaimed by the, the Hasmoneans, which we call the Maccabees, it's about three and a half years. Pretty, pretty amazing. By the way, the Maccabees... Do you ever think about, we don't hear about them because we're not Jewish, but that is awesome story. You should really go back and read about how they, they step up, right? The, 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 uh, you have this Antioch is doing all this awful stuff. And really, there's names are Maccabees. There's this, there's this priest that was in this town that was outside of Jerusalem. And, and the Greeks show up and they're like, you have to sacrifice you know, to our God. And, he's, and there's this priest. He's like, I'm not going to do that. So they get this, this Jew that's in his village that says, I'll do it because he's Hellenized, so he likes Greek stuff. He's like, falafels are awesome, so I'm going to go kill this. So he's going to go to this awful sacrifice. And this Jewish priest, he goes, he's like, no, you're not. And he kills the guy before he makes the sacrifice. And then he kills the, the, the Greek guard that's there. And he says, hey, uh, we worship God only, and if you want to be with me, then let's go. So they all flee up into the mountains, and there's not very many of them. There's like, you get this army that's like hiding in the mountains, and there's like maybe 12,000 that they end up getting. It's not very many people. And then uh, he's got five sons, and one of them is, is named Judah or Judas, right? Which is why in Jesus' time there were a lot of Judas and Judases, right? And he's this powerful, like, great leader. And he was so tough that the, the Jews, or the, they would call him the, the hammer, the hammer of God, which is what Maccabee means, like a smackabee, right? Bam! 
right? That's what it means. Well, then the Hasmoneans eventually kick out the, the Roman. It, it's an amazing story. You can read about it. It's the Apocrypha. There's other st- um, the history of the Jews. It's a crazy story about how God delivers them. And one of the sons find, it lives, and then they end up setting up a bad kingdom where the, the Hasmoneans, that family, becomes both the priests and the king, and there's really no priest and king until the Messiah. And it leads the country into like, this moral decay until they invite the Romans, basically, to take them over. So this is a fascinating story. Anyway, read about a part of that when they're cleaning the temple out. They, they finally conquer the temple area, and they go in there, and they, wanna, they set the temple up, and, the, and the, it's, everything is just defiled. The first thing they do is they light the menorah, and, and they want to put some light into the temple, and they only have enough oil for, for one day. And so they pour the oil, and it takes them eight days to press more oil, but the, the candle that just burns for eight solid days, why they have, they have the Hanukkah. Isn't that awesome? Like, God just gives you shivers. God is a powerful God. He's working in this time. And the identity of the king of to verse 35 is this dude, Antioch's Piff, and he's a bad dude. And so, uh, so I believe that we go starting in, in, uh, in his chapter, we, we, we see here that he's the one in verse 35, you know, he was the one that was, that was still working there. And so in verse 36, it says, and this king will do as he pleases. I, I like the idea that it's the same guy, it kind of flows in scripture there's no indication that there's a difference in fact uh, we also look in the rest of these these passages verse 35 verse 36 there's some interesting thing it talks about that this possibly could be the same time period one of those is all these phrases says at that time at this time verse 35 um, it says some will rise and stumble so that they were refined right and then um, and then verse 36 the king will do as he pleases um, he will magnify himself um, and then uh, you know, he, he's just kind of, there's a flow to it uh, that happens there. In Daniel uh, 11.40, it says, There at that time, uh, at the end of the king of the south, will engage him in battle. You still seem to have this, this battle between the king of the north and the king of the south, which is what we saw from verse 1 to verse 35, right? And so it's, it seems to be at that same period of time that you have those kind of things. And then it also says, At that time, his people will be delivered at that same verse. And so, I don't know, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that kind of point to this uh, being a continuation, that we're still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, one is there's is scripture, there's no sudden transition given. It doesn't say at a later time there'll be this other king that comes or anything like that. Uh, and then usually in prophecy, there's, that's what you'll get. If they were talking about like a huge gap, there's, there's nothing there. And the word king also, just interesting enough, and I was doing a study on the, the Antichrist, which is a fun study, by the way. Uh, the, the word king would only be used here to apply to the Antichrist if this is the Antichrist. The word king is never used, really applied to him uh, later on. He's a ruler, he's a horn, things like that. And you could say, well, king that way. But uh, as far as like a title, like the king, it would only apply here if he's the Antichrist. So, um, but we already know there's a king that it applies to, and so that's one of the reasons I'm going to go with it. Um, and then also the descriptions of things here can be applied to what happens in the life of Antioch's Epiphanes. However, I've got to warn you that not as cleanly as the first 35 verses. The first 35 verses, I mean, are just like hand in glove, what we know with history. After verse 36, things get a little squirrely, and uh, I don't know why God did it that way, but he did. So there you go. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, so now we got, I'm going to say it's Antioch's Epiphanes is the king, if that's where we're going to go with. Okay, so the events of the time of the king. What's going to happen? How do we know this guy, what is he going to do? The first thing is he's going to be blasphemous, right? That's going to be the nature of his rule, right? And so we read here, verse 36, the king will do as he pleases, right? Not of what God pleases, right? Not what he should do, just as what he wants. And isn't that the sin nature? That we all think that, you know, each of us, if we get down to it, we're all own little dictators. Like we told God, well, we had the poison of Eden, right? Your morals are your morals, God. Mine will be mine. I'm going to do what I want, right? Before the flood, it said that everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes. People didn't do what they thought was wicked, but it didn't make them any less wicked because it says in Scripture that all their thoughts were evil all the time. Why? Because they were worshiping themselves. And Antiochus is a guy who just personifies that. He does what he wants to do. Right? And what does he want to do? Well, he will, ex- he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, right? And, and the god of gods. He will say, worship me. I am better. And you know his name means, you know, it's like this Antiochus Epiphany is like the, the, the glory of God. 
That's what he's calling himself. I mean, that's, that's pretty gutsy. And he goes into the temple and he puts a statue of himself in there. And he says, if you're going to, to pray, you're going to pray to me. Right? That's what he does. And so this is his nature. He believes he, he has no fear of God. He's going to be blasphemous. He's going to speak against God and all kinds of things. And then, uh, and it says he will be successful until the time of uh, he was until the time of wrath is completed. For he has for what has been determined must take place. Verse thirty six. God's going to let him succeed. And I imagine that the faithful Jews are watching this horrible man go into their temple and desecrate it, and he's getting richer and more powerful by the day. And they're thinking, "Where are you, God?" And uh, God's got an answer. It's like, there's a day, there's a time. Have you ever felt that way? You look in the world and you see wicked and evil and all that kind of stuff and pain. There's this thing called the problem of evil. It keeps people from believing in God. They said, if God is so perfect and God is all good and all that, and then how can there be pain and evil? Well, because we're evil, that's why. But God is creating a place where there isn't those things. And he's redeeming us from them. But sometimes God allows these things to take place. I think part of it is to show us. For When we get to heaven, one of the reasons we're never going to rebel against God is we'll remember what a lousy job we did at trying to be him. Right? We'll look into this world, and if there was no pain, if God saved us from all of the pain and the consequences of our bad actions, we would never learn the lesson. God allows it. And it's hard. And a lot of people died, and it was miserable. And I think that it says, but I love that verse in there. It says, until the time completed. God's got evil on a leash. And he'll rein it in. Okay, now the next thing we know is he's going to be a god of fortresses, which is an interesting prediction. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors, or the gods desired by women, nor, nor any god, but he will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, and with costly gifts. What do you suppose the god of fortresses is? Oh, there's lots of great ideas. Some people say, well, it might be Mars. Right or Jupiter, the Roman gods of, of war or of travel like this, or conquest, which I think have merit. And he did worship those, although Zeus seemed to be Antiochus' favorite. That's the god that he sets up in, his, in the temple, and that was certainly the god of his fathers. I think if I was to guess god of fortresses, it means his god is war itself. And you know what's interesting? Is what one of the things Antiochus does is he tears down these these altars and, and not just the the Jewish ones, right? Of of the uh, all the different uh, villages have their own little gods, and he's like, no, you're going to be Jewish, right? Or you're going to be Greek. And so that's what he does. He Hellenizes them, and he melts these things down, and he uses it to fund his campaigns, his military campaigns, and he builds massive fortresses. That's part of who he is. Well, if that's the interpretation of it, I don't know, but it seems kind of interesting that his God, I believe, is a God of war. And he believes in his own power and his own might to get things done. It's pretty crazy. Okay, next thing we learn about is he's going to honor those who side with him. And that's in verse 38 and 39. You can read about that. He says, uh, uh, Instead of them, he will honor God of fortresses. And it says, he will um, attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign god, and he will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. The mightiest fortress, what is this? Well, it depends. Again, he attacked the mightiest fortress of the time. It was down in, in, uh, in the south. It was in, um, in Egypt, and he attacked that and was successful for a time. But also, I would say the mightiest fortress happens, I would believe it would be the temple, because God's pretty darn mighty. And he attacks it, and he is successful for a time. And he attacks it with a foreign god, a god that didn't belong there. And what does he do? It says that those who, who aside with him, he's going to honor those who acknowledge his thing. And so those, the Jews that decided they were going to be Greek, and, and what did he do? He gave them all kinds of great things. He made it really easy to be a, to be a Greek citizen, Right? He made it look really good. He gave you these. He built this huge circus in the middle of Jerusalem. He great education for that. If you were on his side, that life would be easy for you, right? He owned the newspapers. He owned the media. He owned everything, right? He chose. He said, Listen, "If you're Greek, then you're popular, and if you're not, then you are detested, and we're going to make your life hard." And that's exactly what he did. And then it says uh, he will make them rulers over many people, and we distribute land at a price. He's not a guy that, that cares about uh, you know, justice or, uh, or righteousness. 
he's, he's basically taken bribes. The, the nation, the heart of the soul of the nation is basically up for a bribe. He says, you know what? If you pay me enough money, I'll let you be the ruler of this area. And you can see, obviously, the problem that that would have. And we see that Antiochus really acted a lot that way, is that he, he took uh, money and he really sold off, he auctioned off the, the power of, of the area. It was, a, it was a bad day. When you talk about dirty politics, that's what it's going to be. All right, so then we see that there's going to be a conquest at the end of all of this. And this is the part that I think gives us the, the most difficulty in uh, this understanding. Starting in verse 40, it says, um, At the time of the end, right, so this gives the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships, right? And he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood, and he will invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall. Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. And then he will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the treasuries and gold and the silver and all the riches of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites will also be in submission. And so we see there's going to be this, this battle. The king of the south is going to rise up. That would be the Ptolemies and are going to attack him. And he's going to respond with an overwhelming type of force. And he's going to attack in the land and the sea. They didn't have aircraft back then, right? So he's going to have tanks and chariots and armies. He's going to have big war, and he's going to attack from with also ships. And he's going to go down, and he's going to destroy pretty much Egypt. Now, um, if you to understand like why some of those countries don't get there, like the um, the Edomites, why they, they they don't get there. So you have like um, how would it be best for you guys? I'm going to look. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> So the Holy Land, right? Yeah, the Great Sea is over here. Egypt is kind of down here in this area here. Okay, so then you have Egypt. It's kind of like right or not Egypt. This is a, Israel. It's right here. Okay, and then the Cushites and, and Africa is all down here. Over here on this side is where the Edomites and all those other people are, right? So he's not so worried about attacking off to the east. He wants to go south and west, and that's why where it says he's going to attack. And then um, his ships will, will. Does that make sense? So that's he's telling you geographically where the war is going to be. So that's where the war would have been. Uh, he goes, he also enters the glorious land, which is Israel, right? And he conquers that as well. And he brings, he's able to overcome Egypt, right, in this, this massive battle. Well, Antiochus does. This is the sixth and final Egyptian-Syrian war. Antiochus does go and attack Egypt and overcome those things. And he does not go to the, to the east, right? He, doesn't, he just goes west and south in that. But one thing that was prophesied earlier in this chapter uh, also applies to this war. And it says that the Romans will come down and stop him and make him go back home. And that's why he gets so mad and starts taking his anger out on the, the Romans. So this would be two descriptions of that same battle. be honest with you, I don't like that. Maybe it's there in Scripture, but that's, I'm going to tell you, that's going to be one of the, the issues of interpretation on this particular thing. Those events happened, but they were already, uh, in a couple paragraphs earlier, discussed too. So uh, we've got to go to the Scripture and be like, hmm. Okay, now, something that happens, though, in this is it says that news from the north will cause him alarm, and then he's going to withdraw, right? He will extend his power over many countries, right, in verse 43. And then verse 44, it says, But reports from the east and the north will, uh, will alarm him, and he will set out in a greater rage to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, and he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Well, this does apply to Antioch after that sixth war, the sixth battle of uh, the Syrian-Egyptian war. He's down there, and, and Antiochus hears about up north, there's this guy, the king of the Mithridites, uh, or King Mithridates I, sorry, of Pertha, which is up there in the north uh, uh, east. He says, all right, uh, Antiochus is way down south in his empire, and he's fighting in the southwest. So um, his armies are on the opposite side. We're going to get our independence, and we're going to take this out of him. So, so what he does is he takes his armies in from the north, and he basically bifurcates the Seleucid Empire and cuts off their trade routes to India. And India had all the spices, which were really valuable. right? So while Antiochus is in Egypt fighting, and he has the Romans showing up and saying, hey, man, you better you know, rethink this whole thing, right? he finds out that up north, he's already being attacked. 
And so, and at the same time, there is a rebellion happening in Israel. Right? That you have the, the Maccabee rebellion has already begun, and you've got this 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 trouble that's that's it's happening there. So what does he do? Well, Antiochus thinks, well, the, the Jewish people, we can crush them pretty easy because they always underestimate God. So he sends up one of his generals over to take up, you know, to fight the, the Maccabees, and he takes the rest of his force, about two-thirds of his fourth force, up north to go fight uh, the, uh, the Perthians, right? And so they go up there, and he gets routed. And the Romans come and basically tell him, you've got to stop this or we're going to shut you down. He gets, he basically, he gets destroyed. And he finds out that his, his soldiers down there that are fighting the Maccabees are getting destroyed. And he's having a bad day, right? And so what happens to him next? Well, there's different accounts, but they all end in the same place. One account is that he gets so freaked out, he's like, ah, he escapes on a boat... And he goes all the way back down on the, on the, um, the Great Sea, the, the uh, Mediterranean, and he ends up on the coastland between the, the mountains and in Jerusalem. And that's kind of where he, he sets up, and the people call him a refugee, right? And, uh, and others say that he just retreats down to that area uh, through, over the land. It doesn't really matter how he gets there. But while he is there, he's in this land. He's trying to think about how he's going to respond to these two different wars. He ends up getting an illness, a really bad illness. In fact, it's, if you could read about it in the book of Maccabees, which is because um, you want to read about an evil guy dying in a horrible, horrible way, this, is, this happened to this dude. Right? He gets this horrible gut disease, and he dies, and no one can help him. And thus is the end of the great Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So, pretty good. He dies. Then we get to verse 12. At that time... We find there that God will help them in verse 12 or chapter 12, verse 1. At that time. Not, and so when all this is happening, during this, these battles and all this, you know, not after Antiochus dies, but at that time when these things are happening, the great prince who protects your people, who is Michael, will arise. Now we talked about who he is. He is that archangel, that one powerful angel that's, that uh, God set over to protect the people of God, the people of Israel. And we've seen him several other times before. And it says he's going to arise. He's going to get up and he's going to help out. And there will be a time of distress such as not has happened before the beginning of the nations until then. Right? It doesn't say it's the worst that will ever happen. But it's the worst that happened for the Jews up until that point. And certainly would say the, the persecution under Antiochus was there. And guess what? God was not silent. He, he sent his mighty warrior angel Michael to help. And so it says, uh, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found in the book, will be delivered. And the multitudes will sleep in the dust of the earth and will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. So you see, at that time, there's something more going on. The battle is bigger than you think. You see all these, these passages, all these are kind of getting wrapped together at the last thing here. There's a, there's a spiritual war going on, and God is reminding the people Listen, at that time, when Antiochus steps up, it's going to be really bad. And God warned his people will be bad. Right? But that's, that's not all there is. That God is at fighting. That Michael is already fighting. And, and there is a victory that is going to happen. And it says that, uh, that uh, those whose names are written in the book of life will arise. And people are going to die. Good people. Good, faithful people will die in this battle. And God says, okay. Because they're going to arise again. And you know what? Really, really wicked people are going to die in this battle too. Those who rejected God, those who, who turned away, you know what? They're going to arise too, and there's going to be judgment. It matters what side you're on. Now, Daniel is writing this centuries before it happened, but for the people at the time who have this scripture, what a great reminder. Choose your side wisely. Because even if you die, you don't escape. The end, your end is just the beginning. But I also love this, that their names are already written in the book of life. There's security there, isn't it? Isn't it amazing to know that no matter what happens in this life, if your name is written in the book of life, you're good. You'll rise again to everlasting glory. But I think it's also equally as terrifying for those who stand outside of Christ. Their name is not in there. There's, 
There's judgment coming. And we have to take that serious. And so we have this at the time in the end. Now, um, I think that this is at that time was the Maccabean Revolt. Michael did arise. There was a little help that was given in the name of a hammer. And Judah came and just started destroying and kicking out. But there was a lot of battles. And four of the five sons of the priest who, who rebelled against the Greeks die in this. And it was a time of unprecedented trouble. You have 12, maybe 14,000 on a high end of soldiers fighting against probably 400,000 heavily armored, highly trained Greek soldiers. You ever seen uh, the movie 300 or heard about it? You know, there's Sparta, those are Greeks. This is where these guys are fighting. But God's not afraid. And he sends his people and he says, it's all right. Fight the battle. Fight the good fight. Even if you die, you'll arise. Security, is, it's an amazing thing. But I also say that, that many of, uh, that, uh, that sleep in the dust of the earth are going to wake, and there's that two points then. Some to everlasting shame, some to everlasting security. We have to be sure where we stand. And I think that's where the people of Israel were. It would have been really easy to stand with the 400 heavily armored, 400,000 heavily armored soldiers of Greece. Be really easy to go and to say, you know what? God told us to do things this way, but right now the temple's in shambles. That's big. It's we can't even do sacrifices, right? And if I just go on to the Greek side, if I just compromise that much, I could still claim I'm Jewish. But if I just come on to this side, then things will go well with me. They'll leave me alone, and life will be good, and I won't be persecuted, and all that kind of stuff. And it'd be really hard to say I'm going to risk everything, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to stand with God. And, and your buddies, they don't come back home from this war. And you might not either. But to be able to stand with God takes courage. And that's, I think it's, it's important for us to say that, that, that the end, oftentimes we're so afraid of the end, we're afraid of death and we're afraid of persecution. But I'll tell you this, Christian, that we cannot allow that to be our point of fear. That the end is not the end. That God has overcome this world and there is a judgment coming and there is a time coming and there's a restoration coming. And he said, the end of this world is just the beginning of an eternity. And you want to find yourself with him on that eternity. You can't be on the wrong side. You must not allow yourself to be on the wrong side. And even though if it's easier now, don't let the fear of the consequence of following Christ now keep you from the glory that awaits you next. That is a, a, a teaching that is all the way through Scripture. We have to be willing to lose everything here so we can gain everything there. And if you are not willing to do that, Jesus has some pretty harsh words and some pretty strong warnings. He says, if you want to follow him, you've got to take up your cross daily, and that's what it means. What is the sacrifice? What is the cost of faith? Well, the people that were fighting the Maccabees were going to be asked to pay a high cost. But that cost has not ended. You know what Christians right now are the most persecuted peoples in the world? More Christians are executed and murdered and taken out of their businesses and stuff like that by, by far than any other racial group or any other social group or any other political group. There's a cost. And we have to make sure that we are on the right side. Now, this is the other side of it, though. When we have a heavenly perspective and we recognize that there's something greater going on, look what it says right after that. It says that those will rise and, and multiples of sleep will rise. Uh, it says that... Uh, Verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightest heaven, like the brightness of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, in the time of the Maccabees, it says that those that, that taught people truth to say, hey, be faithful, and those who stood with them, that God, even if they died in this life, says they've received glory, right? And they shine. And even now, don't the Jews still Celebrate Hanukkah with light of all things. But also this, that those who teach others to be faithful, that there's even a greater glory. And not just to hold faith to yourself, but to realize that the real glory in life does not rest only in, you know, in, in, you know just, I'll just wait for heaven to come. But what we do here now matters. And we see that uh, Judas Maccabee and his followers... They taught others not just to fight the Greeks, but how to worship and honor God. What an amazing thing. This is, this is for us, too. 
you get that promise, I mean, we see this is how God deals with faithfulness. It's not just that he saves us, but he gives us an opportunity to shine like stars. And it all has to do with, are you going to be faithful, and are you going to help other be faithful? Are you going to be disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus? There's a reward for that. Pretty great thing. And that's not anything new. Now, we get to this point, and the focus of this passage shifts away from, um, really, the vision, and shifts towards, then, timing, right? So, Daniel said, told, after he gets all of this, in verse 8, it says, Daniel, roll up the, uh, the seal and seal the words of this scroll until the time of the end. Because many are going to go here and there and they're going to increase in knowledge, right? Well, this wasn't for Daniel. This scripture, this passage, all this stuff made no sense to Daniel because he lived during the times of the, right now where the Persians were in power. And it would be hundreds of years before these things took place. And he's like, you're not going to understand this. You're not going to know who Antiochus Epiphanes is. You're not going to know who Cleopatra is. You're not going to know any of these types of things that were prophesied in here. He's like, don't worry about it. Your job was to write it down. Sometimes our faithfulness is not for us. It's for the generations to come. And for Daniel, he wrote it down, and he's like, you don't even have to get it. You don't have to understand it. You did your part. You wrote it down. Now seal it up. Make sure it doesn't get changed. Right? And don't try to falsely apply this to yourself. This has nothing to do with you. Be faithful. But so then Daniel, as he looks up and he sees verse 15, these two others, I don't know if they're angels or whatever, but I bet they are. And this says, one was on the bank of the river and the other was on the opposite bank. So they're, they're like shouting over the, the river at each other. And one of them says to the man clothed in lemon who is above the water. So he's kind of like in the middle, like, which is pretty cool. Right? So he's kind of between the two. And they're talking to each other. And he says, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Now, this is for Daniel because Daniel, I'm sure, wanted to ask the question. Right? If this isn't for me, then who is it for? And it says, well, uh, we have this discussion, how long? Well, the answer is given. The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and, was, and his left hand towards the heavens. So he's like, he's going to, it's like, this is true before God, right? And then he says, I, I heard him swear by him who lives forever. That's God saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken and all these things will be completed. So there's that amount of time. Time times and half a time is three and a half years. One plus two years is three years plus a half a time, three and a half years. That's 42 months, 1,280 days. Okay? If you want to do that the way that they wanted to do that. Okay, so that's you got that time. Okay? Daniel's like, wait a second. I need a little clarification here. Time, times, half times between the times the people are, are broken. And it says, uh, so Daniel in verse 8 says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? What's it going to be? What's the end of all of it? Why are we we're doing this? And then he replied, go your way, Daniel, because your words are rolled up and sealed until the time's the end. You've already got the prophecy. It's not for you. Sealed up. So you just go away. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. So don't be surprised by that. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished to the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. And you're like, well, here's a new number. What are all these things about? Well, the starter, about, let's go with what he says. The first thing is he tells Daniel... Just trust God, right? You've gotten this. You're not going to understand it all, but know this, that good is going to win, right? That, that many will be made righteous, that good wins, right? That God's got a good plan, that this is a good plan and it results in good things. And guess what? The wicked are going to continue to be wicked. Don't expect this to end wickedness on this earth, right? God is going to have to do that, but, but they're not going to win. That's the first thing we need to get from this because it needs to lead us to hope. When you look into this world today, isn't it important for us to realize that good wins, I mean, really to own that, when you read the news, that good wins? That God wins? Like all these people who mock him and all these things in this world that go against him and all the persecutions that our brothers and sisters face because of him, those that persecute and those who resist God, they don't win. That's awesome. Start there. Brings hope. Good wins. All right. But then he gets us, okay, let's get to those numbers. 
Daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination causes desolation. Well, this has to do with Antioch's epiphanies, right? He had this, this period of time where he came in. He shut down the law. He made it illegal after that, that battle when he gets turned around by the ships that kill him, right, by the, the, the Romans. And he goes back up through Israel, and he's mad because he can't conquer Israel, uh, Egypt anymore, right? And so what does he do? He says, no more. You can't, you can't be Christians and all that kind of stuff anymore. And eventually he goes and he, he has this horrible sacrifice that's on the altar and we, we find it's about three and a half years of that time where the temple is desecrated till the time it was cleansed and we have the, uh, the Maccabees come in and we have uh, the, uh, what do they call that, uh, Hanukkah, right? Where, where that begins, right? It's about three and a half years of, of, of desolation in the temple. What about that the extra number, that uh, 1,335 days? That turns out to be an extra month and a half, right? There's a lot of differences as to what that could mean. Although, it's interesting to note that according to the book of Maccabees and, and the writings of Josephus, it took about a month and a half to totally rebuild the altar and purify the temple and, and uh, reset the faith from when it was... They, they began the purification to when the temple was actually finally functioning and everything was cleaned out. It took about a month and a half. Is that what it's talking about? Maybe. I don't know. It's interesting, though. I think it's, it's important for us to realize, though, in this passage, maybe that wasn't, number wasn't just for, for us. Maybe it was for the people that were living at the time. Or maybe it's this. You know, sometimes when I was reading it, it's, uh, you know, sometimes we see the beginning of God's work, but we've got to stick with him until he completes it. And that's important, too. You know, when they cleanse the temple, you don't want the Jewish people then to be like, oh, okay, now we're done, let's go back home, and it doesn't matter. No, like, the work of God needs to continue till completion. And you want to be part of that, don't you? You want to be part of saying, oh, God did some great things, and so we're good, and then just kind of go back to on your own life and doing things you stick with it. I don't know, that, that number is a mystery. Uh, Less so if you go to the other interpretation, by the way, that there's some much clearer interpretation of that. So I encourage you to listen to those. Okay, so, um, but then here's the last thing that Daniel gets. This is the end of the book of Daniel. Here's a faithful life. A man taken into captivity when he was a teenager, probably saw his parents killed or whatever, right? Kicked in captivity, lives his life, and raises in, in the power. He sees God bless and work through him, through not just one empire, but two. All this kind of stuff gets visions and all of this kind of stuff. This is the last words that we get from Daniel. And this is what it says. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and at the end of your days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Be faithful, Daniel. You've been faithful. You've done what I've asked. Now go. Be well. Be faithful. Claim to God, you're going to work, and eventually you're going to die. Guess what? That's not the end. And you're going to rise, and you're going to see all these things have completed. You're going to see your place in all of this. Go your way. Be at peace. I think for us, that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing for us. I think oftentimes we get so caught up in this world that we forget that this world is, is going to end. That this, that this world, like, like it's all got to center around me. I'm only part of God's plan. You are only part of God's plan. We're important parts of God's plan, but we're just parts of it. And just be faithful. Just be faithful today. Do what God asks you today. Trust him with the big picture, right? Be faithful. And you know what's going to happen unless he comes back? You're going to die. Okay. But then you're going to rise again and you're going to receive your inheritance. Live with faith. Die with faith. That's because here, this world, the end, man, it's, it's just the beginning, isn't it? It's just the beginning. So how do we apply all this? What are some big things in the book of Daniel? We've got some big stuff that we, we see. We see that God is sovereign in the book of Daniel, don't you? You see that God is the God of all things. That he knows the end before the beginning. That's what he claims to. That's one of the things he tells us about that so we know that he's real. But we see that he's sovereign. through. He doesn't just know the end. He's able to direct things. We see that good wins, that God is not overcome by evil, not even close. It's not even a close battle, is it? I mean, he's so far ahead. We see that evil loses. You don't want to be on that side. That wickedness has its day and its day is numbered. And we see that eternal consequences exist. How I live matters. God will do his thing, but how I live matters mostly, and I say most acutely, for me. If I'm faithful and I am with God, 
there is a great peace and security that I have, trusting that I'm part of a great story of his kingdom being built and righteousness and redemption and love, right? You want to be part of that story. And if I stand opposed to God, I have to do so at my own peril. And uh, take that very soberly. All right, so how do I apply this book and these things, this is what we learned today? Well, if you take your connection card out, I've got some ideas. First thing you want to do is maybe memorize Romans 15.4 because the biggest thing in our culture is, oh, that's history. That's stuff that happened in the past. Who cares about it? But God is like, that's history, right? I'm telling you something. These things were written for you. So listen to them. Maybe that's the memory verse that you need to do, that these things in the past were written to teach us. They're for us. So that through the endurance taught in Scripture, right, and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. And we live in a world that desperately needs hope. So know the scriptures. And this is a powerful verse to memorize to help you with that. Second thing you want to do is maybe you want to read these last two chapters of Daniel. That's a great thing. Read some commentaries too. There's lots of good um, interpretations on on this. I gave you one. Uh, Read it. Understand it. Also maybe praise God for victory. If you're feeling down, thank him in advance for the good stuff he's doing. If you have some evil things that you're seeing in the world, aren't you glad that those things won't last forever? Take time this week. Praise God because He is the God of victory. He's the God to overcome this world. And not just the world and the big things, but on our life too. Maybe that's what we begin with this week, and it sets our hearts and our minds in the right area. Also, we want to invite a friend next week. You know why? Because the kingdom of God is continuing to advance. Next week, we start a series on 1 John, which happens to be, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but it's my very favorite Bible, book of the Bible, right? It's something that was my very first book that I memorized in Scripture, and it's just been very near and dear to me. I'm very excited to be able to, to share that with you. We'll be starting next week, four weeks, leading us up to Easter. Maybe what you want to do is begin praying or invite a friend to be part of that. It's a, it's a great book of hope and of faith and of light and just good stuff. Maybe there's something else you want to commit to. Let us know. Or if you have a prayer request, this is your opportunity to write it down. We do pray for you every week, and it is our joy and privilege to do that. And here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. If we do, take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket for us. We would appreciate it. First, before we do, let's pray for our, our offering, and then we'll have the worship team come out before they close us. Father God, thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, you're not even surprised that we're here today. Lord, you've numbered the days of our lives, but yet in that you've given us this great mystery that you say we have our ability to choose to follow you or not. So help us to make that choice, Father. Lord, overcome the wickedness and depravity in our hearts and our lives and in this world. Father, change us from the inside out to be more like you, more loving, more kind. Father, the people that are, are followers of you and not followers of self. Lord, we look in Scripture and we see that you do what you claim to do. And we know that end is, is coming. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be ready for your return. Let us be the type of church that serves one another and serves you as we serve this community in your name. Father, I pray for the commitments we're going to make today. Help us to, to really uh, not just follow through with actions, but with heart and with faith. And in that, when we meet you in a more intimate way. Father, for the prayer requests that we've received, Lord, we're going to lift all of those to you, knowing that you listen. You're a God that's powerful. Uh, Father, for the offerings that we get to give and offer today, Lord, I pray that you would take them, receive them as gifts of our heart and our love. We ask all of this in the sovereign and powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.